Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Joe Wolfe. I'm Dean of Arts and Humanities here at UCL. Uh, also, Professor of Philosophy, but that just happens to be by coincidence tonight. And I, I'm here to welcome you to this inaugural lecture, which is part of a series of inaugural lectures that we put on in Arts and Humanities with our sister faculty, Social and Historical Sciences. And uh, you should all have been given the brochure which will tell you what else is on uh, this inaugural season. Nothing else from philosophy this year, but uh, watch this space for, for future performances. And my task is, other than just uh, welcoming you here, is to do two things. Uh, one is to invite you to the reception in the cloisters that follows the lecture, so you're all very welcome to come and have a celebratory drink after the lecture. Uh, and the other is just to pass over to Professor Mike Martin, who will introduce our speaker this evening. It's an old serious uh, um, US research universities. When you have an esteemed speaker, they can't be introduced without the introducer being introduced. So that's what Joe is doing here. Um, Jose Zalabado um, trained first in philosophy at the Autonomous University in Madrid. He then did his MLit at the University of St. Andrews and was sucked away from there to the New World to do his PhD in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. University of Birmingham rescued him from that and then he fell into our arms in the year 2000, making him the sixth most longest-serving member of the current faculty. We're all getting old, <laughs> aren't we? Um, and um, we have him here now as professor of philosophy, just about to give his inaugural lecture. Okay, sketchy biography. But who is Jose Zalabado? Is the question we're, we're all puzzling about, I take it. And, well... I think, at least at first, appearances are somewhat misleading. And um, this, I think, uh, make us think of one aspect of, of Spanish culture is how the English gentleman, the, the stereotype of the English gentleman is so central to, to Spanish thought. And uh, as I'm sure many of you are well aware, that kind of large department store in Spain is El Corte Inglés, the English cult. And so when you first encounter Jose, what you might think is that what you have here is the perfect Spanish example of the English gentleman. <laughs> it's this phlegmatic, ironic sheen, which kind of seemingly disdains abstract and intellectual matters. It's important to be disengaged from things. And if one has to exercise any effort, and it's much better to hide any appearance of effort, then that's to sort out any practical difficulties, which anyway, any troubles will go away very soon. And indeed, that, that misleading appearance was reinforced for me when I learned, when uh, Jose went up for his, his last promotions, reader, why do you put yourself through this tortuous process in which people kind of assess you and you can be found uh, lacking? Uh, so some people are driven by a need for, for money. More are driven 
by a need for recognition of their greatness. In Jose's case, it was much simpler than that. He wanted to go sailing, and Inmar told him that unless uh, he applied to be a reader, he couldn't buy a yacht. <laughs> um, so, we have the appearance of the, the phlegmatic uh, Englishman, but I think that this is, this is misleading, and that, that, that was clear on, um, I, I think, the first paper that I ever read from uh, Jose when he was applying to UCL, um, uh, detranscendentalizing realism, a realism detranscendentalized, sorry, pacifist version of that. And that paper, like I believe this evening's inaugural, focused on what has forever been Jose's central intellectual obsession. Overlap of questions to do with our, the nature of the world, but framing those questions through a concern with how we can come to know about them, and how the fact that we are creatures who can reflect on our own knowledge, what difference that makes to the nature of those questions that we start with. And those are the themes that follow throughout Jose's work. So in both of his monographs, in uh, Skepticism and Reliable Belief, and in Representation and Realism in Wittgenstein's Tractatus, I've got those to the right way around? Yes, sorry. Uh, one sees this continued kind of resolute pursuit of these questions at the highest level of rigor. But it's not just that Jose takes on the kind of most fundamental and deepest questions that we're concerned with, but he also holds up a standard of rigor and clarity. So the idea is that we should try and address these issues as clearly, carefully, and slowly, step by step, as we can. I find the way in which he pursues that utterly admirable. Now, um, one of Jose's um, great heroes is Ludwig Wittgenstein, and Tony Quinter famously said of, of Wittgenstein that he was no nine-to-five philosopher. I remember as a teenager thinking, yeah, that's, that sounds right. You don't want to be a nine-to-five philosopher. Of course, what that means is uh, that uh, Wittgenstein was just monomanic about philosophy, and nothing, well, actually not quite, nothing Eddie Cantor movies, I believe, but nothing was allowed to interfere with those utter obsessions. So one of the other interesting aspects of Jose that I think won't fully come out in this evening's lecture, but, but we may hope, is that he has a much, much broader intellectual and cultural hinterland than that might reveal. So uh, Jose doesn't let on to most of his colleagues, but he runs a blog in Spanish on cultural matters in which you can find his eclectic tastes in cinema, if you care to look at it. And apart from sailing, as I've mentioned, um, he's long had an interest in photography and more recently has become a very skilled watercolorist and draftsman. And it's really worth going on to Flickr and finding this selection of things. So that Within philosophy, you find with Jose a very penetrating, very focused concern with a number of issues which are backed up with a really broad appreciation which he takes away from philosophy 
uh, of cultural and intellectual matters and how we should live in the world. So the, the English gentleman is mere appearance. Yeah, now, just a word about what you're just about to get. I think standardly with inaugural lectures, these are not occasions for um, academics to actually engage in what they call research. There are rather occasions for academics to entertain people and explain the kind of research that they do elsewhere. Um, but, but philosophy is, is different. Actually, the um, uh, eminent uh, philosopher David Wiggins used to complain that uh, when it came to philosophy, uh, talk of research filled him with levity. Um, but, but David Wiggins is wrong about that. There, there is research, indeed there is experiment in philosophy. But, um, so philosophy is not, as philosophers often say, an armchair discipline. It's an experimental discipline. But the experiment takes place in rooms like this. So philosophers collect data about what they're doing by presenting their ideas in front of an audience and gauging the reaction of disbelief, boredom, and incredulity among their audience. So you are all today, in fact, subjects of an experiment. And the experimental scientist and researcher I'm just about to hand over to is now going to engage in a process of research and experiment with you, uh, and afterwards you can give him suitable feedback. But I give you Professor Jose Zalabado talking on representing representation. Thank you, Joe, and thank you very much, Mike, uh, for saying such nice things about me. Um, I hope they're true. Um, when I was trying to decide what to talk about today, um, I noticed one thing. Uh, I've been a professional philosopher for roughly 20 years, and uh, if I want to get my full pension entitlement, I need to stick with it for another 20 so I'm roughly in the middle of my career, which I suppose gives me a good excuse for stepping back a little bit and thinking about what I want to do in the rest of my time. And that's what I want to talk about today. Not things that I've done, but things that I'd like uh, to do. As it happens, uh, the things I'd like to do in the next 20 years are pretty much the things I wanted to do 20 years ago when I started. Uh, I think I made some progress with them, uh, but I got to a point where I felt I had hit a dead end and decided that I should move on to other areas which were related but different, where I felt I, was, I stood a better chance of making a contribution. I've done all that. And I feel that now is the time to have another go at those original concerns. And uh, my purpose today is to present those uh, concerns to you. Right. I want to start with um, a statement that as many people as possible will agree with. And uh, as you know, with so many philosophers in the room, that's not easy. Okay? And I'm not going to succeed entirely, but I'm going to have a go. I'm going to, st I'm going to start with a claim that the physical world exists. Now, 
I know that not everybody here is going to accept that, you know, uh, but I just ask you to, if you are one of those to just concede it to me for the sake of the argument, right? Now, what this means is obviously there's a lot to be said about, you know, what the physical world is and what we mean when we say that it exists, but those details are not going to matter for my purposes, okay? For my purposes, it's fine to, for this claim to remain at a very vague and general level. I think the claim at the level of generality that I want to make you accept it is very well put by uh, Paul Horwich in this passage where he writes, there is undeniably a vast unified network of objects, properties, and facts that bear spatial, temporal, causal, and explanatory relations to one another. A network incorporating observable phenomena, the elementary particles, fields, strings, etc., of physics, for which those phenomena provide evidence, and all the macroscopic objects and events built out of such elements. Something like that. The things, properties, and facts that physics tells us there are, and all the things that can be sort of construed out of those. That's what I'm saying we're taking for granted exists. I want to move on next to a slightly uh, more, uh, by the way, I want to refer to this network of things whose existence I'm accepting as the natural order. That's a sort of standard label for this. The next claim that I'm going to make is a bit more controversial. The claim is no longer that the physical world exists, but the claim that this network, the natural order, is all that exists. Nothing else exists according to the next claim that I want you to consider, the claim that goes by the name of naturalism. The idea is that for something to be real, for something to exist, for something to be a fact, or an object, or a property, it needs to have a place in this network, in uh, the natural order. Now, even for those of us who are inclined to accept naturalism, as I am, the claim is problematic. And it's problematic because there's several ranges of objects and properties and events that intuitively we think of as perfectly real, but when we try to find a place for them in the natural order, it's not here. It's not clear where we're going to place them. Okay? For this, um, let me give you some examples of this, uh, which cover some of the central areas of philosophy. Numbers, mathematical objects and facts. Where in the physical world do we find number three? Or which aspect of nature uh, determines whether or not Goldbach's conjecture is true? Uh, which aspect of the physical order determines whether or not every even number greater than two is the sum of two, two primes? That is a serious question for which there is no obvious answer. Values is another case uh, of this kind of situation. I want to say that there are some more facts. I think it's, it's a fact that is wrong to torture little children for fun. Uh, I think that it's a fact that one shouldn't do that. But again, if we try to find room in the natural order for facts of this kind, we struggle. It's not easy to say where in the natural order these uh, facts are to be found. Consciousness is another case of this type. Uh, where in nature do we find the features of it that determine that a pickle feels the way it does, or that it feels any way at all? Okay? 
that is again a question with which philosophers struggle. And in general, I think it's fair to say that many of us philosophers spend a good deal of our time dealing with one place, with one of these problems, uh, these problems which uh, uh, Hugh Price, who is in the room, has, has labeled as placement problems, the problem of placing these problematic ranges of objects and uh, facts in the natural order. Many of us, as I was saying, seem to be engaged with some placement problem or other, either trying to solve it or dealing with the consequences of failure. The situation with respect to them um, is fairly clear. Um, with respect to any of these ranges of objects, you basically face three options. Either you succeed in solving the placement problem, that is, you find a place in nature for the range of facts or properties uh, that you're interested in, or if you fail, you could say, well, then these facts don't exist, as many people have done with respect to uh, several of the ranges of uh, facts that we've just mentioned. If it, I'm a naturalist, if they're not in nature, then they're not anywhere, they don't exist, and that's that. Or, obviously, the third option is to say, well, I'm sorry, I thought naturalism was true, but I realized that it can't be true because these things exist and they're not natural. You have to choose one of these. Uh, you know, one of these three has to be your outcome. Now, the things I want to talk about today uh, concern a specific uh, placement problem, the placement problem that has to do with mental representation, uh, by which I'm going to mean our ability to represent the world in consciousness, to produce conscious events, episodes, which can be truly described as representations of the world. I want to focus uh, specifically on um, a particular kind of mental representation, the kind of mental representation that is sometimes known as judgment. By a judgment, I mean a mental episode in which you represent things as being a certain way. It's, that's, that doesn't really sort of tell us what it is, but I'm hoping that you'll sort of see where, uh, what, what I'm getting at. Uh, these episodes are paradigmatically present in cases where you are trying to find the answer to a factual question, and uh, suddenly you find it. You say, ah, that's the answer, right? This is an example that Bertrand Russell gives of the kind of thing we're talking about. He uses the term belief indistinguishable with the term judgment. He says, if I say what day of the week is this, and you say Tuesday, there occurs in your mind at that moment the belief or judgment that this is Tuesday. That mental episode that represents things as being a certain way, that is what I want to uh, focus on. Now, just very quickly to uh, sort of locate the phenomenon, it will help, I think, to uh, present it in contrast with related but different uh, phenomena, types of mental representation. Take, for example, non-cognitive propositional attitudes. Think of a, a birthday party where people say, close your eyes and make a wish. And suppose that you do that. You make a wish. Suppose you say, I wish it was Tuesday. Right. Uh, when you do that, you are indeed representing the world as being a certain way, in the same way, in some sense, as you represent it when you form the belief that it is Tuesday. But obviously, there is a difference. It's a difference of attitude, 
hard to know what it comes down to in the end, but all I'm saying is that this is not what I'm talking about. It's only judgments that I, I, I want to discuss. Second kind of mental representation that I'm not, I'm leaving out of the picture, is non-propositional mental representation. Uh, suppose I say, close your eyes and picture Paris in your head, right? Most of us know what to do to sort of obey that command, and when we succeed, we, are, we have sort of represented the world in a certain way, but it's not the judgment in that it's not the kind of thing that can be sort of true or false, that sort of makes a commitment to things being a certain way. This is vague and inadequate, but I think the distinction, uh, what is on which side of, of the divide, should be sufficiently clear. And finally, I want to distinguish judgment from mental representations which are non-conscious. The standard example is when you are driving, you're an experienced driver, you don't need to think about what you do, you are talking to somebody in the car, and you don't notice what you're doing, right? Uh, you are concentrating on the conversation, and you still do things. You, you shift gears, you move the steering wheel, and all those actions, obviously, if you're not going to crash the car, will need to be informed by information uh, about your environment, about the other cars, etc., the sound, the sounds that the, the engine makes. And this, all these might be non-conscious. You might not realize that you're registering these things, but they do deserve the label the title of sort of mental representations. Again, that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the conscious variety of propositional mental representation. Okay. Now, so, what we um, want to concentrate on is the placement problem that arises for judgment. Where in nature do we find room for this phenomenon, judgment. Now, the difficulties that we encounter when we try to answer this question, uh, well, not the difficulties, but we find difficult, when we try to answer this question, we find difficulties even before we impose the naturalistic constraint. Even before we say, let's restrict ourselves to natural physical things, there are still problems for the project of finding a place for judgment in the world. That, well, that kind of problem is what I'm referring to as the problem of judgment. The problem is this. Judgment, clearly, I think, or sufficiently clearly, once you think about it for a little while, involves a relation between the mind and the world. It's not something that can happen, can happen sort of autonomously in your mind. It has to, at some point, relate you to the world, because when you judge, you judge what things are like in the world. Your ju judgment is either true or false, and which of the two it is, is going to depend on how things stand, not in general in your mind, but on how things stand in the world. Understanding the specific shape, character of that relationship between the mind and the world, presupposed by judgment, is what we call um, the problem of judgment. Um, and if we are naturalists, the specific version of this problem is to say, well, that relation, where in nature do we find it? Okay. Now, to appreciate the difficulties that uh, we face when we try to answer this question, it helps, I think, to start by considering a proposal 
that at first sight seems uh, promising and natural, but as we're about to see, we soon realize that it just can't possibly work. The idea is to think of a judgment as a relation uh, between the mind and the fact. Okay? Suppose that I look around, I see that Mark Calderon is not here. I wonder where he is. And then I remember he told me he was going to go to Portugal. So I make the judgment, ah, Mark is in Portugal. Right? The proposal that we are considering is that when I judge that Mark Calderon is in Portugal, what I'm doing is I'm establishing a relation between my mind and this fact in the world. Uh, and we're assuming that Mark is in Portugal. He really told me he's there. So it is a fact in the world that that person is located at that place. Okay? So that's something there. Presumably my mind could establish a relation to it. And I judge that Mark Calderon is in Portugal by establishing that relation to the fact. And if I'm a naturalist, all that remains to be done is to explain naturalistic terms uh, what kind of relationship that one is. But the relata, or at least the sort of worthy relatum, should not, in general, pose a problem. Now, this sounds very plausible, I think, when you first think about it, but it only takes a minute to realize that it's got a major flaw. It works very well for true judgments, but judgments can be false as well as true, and for false judgments, it's not at all obvious how this proposal is supposed uh, to work. Suppose that Mike Martin is also wondering where Mark is, and not having heard about his trip, he says, oh, he must be in his, he must be in his office. So he makes the judgment that Mark Calderon is in his office. Now, what is Mike's mind related to on this position? Well, we want to say to the fact that Mark is in his office. But there's no such fact. Mark is, Mark is not in his office. That's required by the falsehood of the judgment. So the question for this proposal is, what on earth is a false judgment supposed to be related to? Now, these difficulties with false judgment have been appreciated from uh, the beginning of philosophy. They are very clearly and very insightfully presented in Plato's dialogue, uh, The Sophist. But they came to prominence again uh, with Bertrand Russell, with his work on the theory of judgment in the first decade or so of the 20th century. Um, Russell had a succession of ideas as to how to solve this problem. The first one is what's come to be known as uh, the, what he calls the dual relation theory of judgment. This proposal, in a nutshell, is to say, look, treat true, uh, true judgments as we just did, as a relation to a fact. And when it comes to dealing with false judgments, just postulate some items, some entities, which he calls objective non-facts, for you to be related to in the same way in which you are related to facts when you, when you judge truly. So on this theory, uh, 
the world, of course, contains the fact that Mac is in Portugal. We all accept that. But in addition, it contains this other strange thing, the objective non-fact that Mark is in his office. And that's got to be the thing to which I am related when I judge, when, well, to which Mark is related when he judges that uh, Mark is in his office. Um, now, this proposal faces many problems. Russell himself realized that this was barely tenable. We won't go into the difficulties. Uh, but there were enough to convince him that uh, he should abandon this theory in uh, favor of um, an alternative. The alternative that Russell replaced this with is what's known as the multiple relation theory of judgment. This new theory is based on a metaphysical assumption, which is fairly natural, but by no means uncontroversial, is the assumption that facts are composite. A fact is produced by the combination of other more simple items. In the more familiar version of the view, the things that you combine to produce judgments are particulars or individuals on the one hand, and universals on the other. You, uh, a, a fact is produced when particulars and universals are combined with one another uh, in the right sort of way. So take the fact that Mark Calderon sucks. That will be a fact that is combined when a property, the property of sulking, is uh, combined with uh, the individual Mark Calderon. Uh, the fact that Mark Calderon is in Portugal is produced when two individuals, Mark and the country of Portugal, are related to one another by uh, combined with the binary relation of sort of spatial location to produce this composite item, which we call the fact that he's in Portugal. And that's the general uh, shape of uh, the proposal. Now, this is the assumption on which the theory of judgment is based. What the theory of judgment says, what Russell's new theory of judgment says, is that in judgment, you're not related to a fact or to something like a fact. What you're related to are those items from whose combination facts emerge. What you're related to in this version of the theory is particulars and universals. And you judge that something is the case by, by your mind establishing this relation not to whole things, facts, but to the things that play the role of their constituents. Um, so when I judge that Mark is in Portugal, my mind is related not to the fact that Mark is in Portugal, not to this one thing, but to three separate things, to the individual Mark, the individual country of Portugal, and the relation of spatial location. So that's the sort of uh, graphic representation of, of uh, um, Russell's multiple relation theory of judgment. The first thing to notice about this is that it doesn't face a problem with false judgment. It's designed to overcome that difficulty. Uh, there's no reason why uh, the fact that you judge to obtain should obtain, should actually obtain for this relation to be possible. Take Mike's, Mike's judgment that Mark is in his office. The fact that he's in his office doesn't exist, but Mark exists and his office exists 
and the relation exists. So, in judging that Mike, that Mark is in his office, Mike could be related to those three existing things. Okay. Now, just one more twist on the theory, which is not one that Russell himself endorsed, but is one that is, I think, endorsed by most people who uh, follow this, this line of thinking. The next step is to say that judgment themselves are composite. They are produced by the com a combination of items. The, each item uh, from whose combination a judgment arises will be something in the mind that is related to one of these things in the world. Those things in the mind that are related to things in the world is what, uh, uh, in one version of the, of the term, uh, we call uh, concepts. Okay. So the idea is that I have a concept, a thing in my mind that refers, is, well, the term reference is used to denote the relationship between concepts and the things they stand for. So I will have a concept in my mind that stands for Mark, and one that stands for Portugal, and one, one that stands for the relation of spatial location. And I will judge that Mark is in Portugal when those three concepts are combined with one another in the right sort of way. And as I say, the relationship between the concepts and the things in the world is uh, usually known as the relation of reference. So the picture that we end up with is this. There are these three things in my mind, and each of them is related to a thing in the world, and that is the shape uh, of judgment. Now, I think it's fair to say that most people who think that the placement problem for judgment has a solution think that the solution has roughly the shape. Uh, and that's not by chance. I think that, you know, even if there are lots of difficulties with this, there are lots of difficulties, but it's still the case that it's more plausible than any of the uh, available um, alternatives. Okay, so this is the kind of picture endorsed in particular by naturalists who want to tell us what, what the place of judgment is in the natural order. So uh, what they need to do following this pattern to find a place for judgment in the natural order is first find a place for concepts, tell us which natural things these things in my, these little green dots are. Then they have to find a place for reference, tell us what kind of relation these green things bear to things in the world. And if they do, they will have taken a major step towards uh, solving the uh, placement problem for uh, judgment. Now, when I, start, when I first heard about this project uh, in, you know, too long to... Uh, too long ago, uh, when I was a postgraduate student, it had a distinct air of sort of science fiction, right? You know, we're going to find these things in the head that somehow bear relations to the world that will sort of be plausibly described as referential relations. It just seemed like something that, okay, you know, your theoretical commitments make you think that this, is pro this has to be true, but really, you know, who's going to think that this is true? However, things have changed in, in this time. That's what happens when you get old. And this thing that used to 
uh, sound like science fiction is starting to sound more and more like something that one could actually possibly believe in. Take, for example, the uh, groundbreaking discoveries of our colleague John O'Keefe uh, of uh, the uh, neurosciences. John O'Keefe got his Nobel Prize last year for the discovery of place cells. Place cells, I'm told, are certain neurons located in the hippocampus, which are activated when you reach a certain location in your environment. Okay. This idea makes many people think or speak naturally. In fact, it's, it's hard to resist thinking of these neurons, the place cells, as actually representing or standing for or referring to the place in question. So if we look at uh, a presentation of O'Keefe's ideas in a recent, pa recent paper by uh, uh, Neil Burgess, another UCL man, he says the place cells were held to represent the animal's current environmental location. There, we can have cells that represent or refer to places in the world. So why not one for Portugal, right? And uh, if I can have uh, neurons that represent places, presumably I can have neurons that represent people. So I could have one for Mark, and why not uh, neurons that represent uh, binary relations like spatial location? Uh, I'm sure I'm simplifying a bit, but you know you get you get the you, you get the idea. When these three sort of patterns of neural activity get combined in the right sort of way you would get the judgment that Mark is in Portugal and everything would be nicely placed uh, within the natural order. Now, what do I think about this? What I think is that it's not going to happen. Okay? It's never going to happen. There is a problem in principle with this. Okay? We will never find a place in the natural order for the relation of reference between things in your mind or brain and the right things in the world. And the problem is not to do with naturalism, okay? You won't do to say, okay, then I'll give up naturalism and then I can say that reference is a non-natural relation between the mind and the world. No, that's not going to work either. The problems are problems that are more general than that. They are problems with the very idea of finding a place in the world for the relation of uh, reference. Okay? And if this is right, and I think it is, although I'm not, trying, I'm not going to try to convince you of this today, it follows that uh, if we're going to explain judgment, we're going to have to do it without postulating these referential relations between the mind and the world. Now, I'm not going to concentrate on the negative claim that, uh, that uh, this is not going to work, um, although I'll say a little bit about it uh, towards the end. What I want to concentrate on uh, in the remainder is uh, giving a sketch of the positive alternative that I'm hoping to be able to advance and develop in the next 20 years. 
This alternative is one that I want to present in terms of a contrast between two approaches to the task of explicating a concept, to which I'm going to refer as the referential approach and the pragmatist approach. Let's start with the referential approach. The referential approach is best presented, I think, in terms of the work done in the 1970s by Saul Kripke and Hilary Putnam on the semantics of natural kind terms or natural kind concepts, like the concept of gold. Think of what we do to sort of explicate that concept. Well, one thing we can do is to describe how we use the concept, how we uh, engage with it. How do we do that? Well, uh, we don't randomly ascribe the concept to things. We've got procedures for doing that. Okay? And at different times, we've had different procedures. And there have been times when the procedures have changed. Uh, and these are, these are all things that are an important aspect of uh, the life of the concept and things that we can describe, as, as I say, under the label of the pragmatics of the concept. It's not just this, we wouldn't then, we wouldn't here under this heading describe only the sort of lower level procedures that we use for deciding whether a certain object is made of gold, of gold or not. There's also higher order procedures that we decide that we use for deciding uh, how to adjudicate cons conflicts between different procedures that we employ. We also have procedures, higher order procedures, for deciding when a certain lower level procedure should be replaced by a new one that's come along. Or procedures for deciding how, whether someone else who has a concept to which they, as to which they associate a, different, a certain procedure whether they have the same concept as we do, whether they have the concept of gold, even though they apply it using a procedure other than the ones we use. Now, doing all that, giving a full description of what happens at that level, is what I want to call presenting the pragmatics of the concept. Okay. Now, on the referential approach, which is what we are presenting now, when you've done that, you still left out something very important. You still haven't told us what it is that we are saying about, we are claiming about an object when we ascribe to it the concept of gold. Okay? Uh, we haven't said what things have to be like with respect to an object in order for your ascription of the concept of gold to it to be correct or incorrect. To do that, you need to add to the pragmatics by giving the reference of the concept. In this case, you'd have to say that, well, you know, all these procedures are fine, but here's what these procedures are supposed to track. They're supposed to track the presence of this property in a substance, something about its atomic number. What you're after is things whose atomic number is 79. Okay? And it's only then when you've identified the property that determines whether your ascriptions are correct or incorrect, that you're given a full account of the concept. So that's the referential approach. Let me move on now to the um, pragmatist approach, which I want to exemplify by looking at a different concept, the concept of elegance. 
Now, like with the concept of gold, uh, we can do a lot of work in presenting the pragmatics of the concept, talking about how we ascribe it. Now, how do we do that? Well, I take it that you know the basic thing to say is that we have this intuitive sense of uh, that enables us to ascribe the concept of elegance sort of intuitively to some things and not to others. There are things where, where we're not sure, but you know there are cases where we are certain. Now, this intuitive sense uh, is broadly shared with <coughs> other people, certainly in your own culture, but I'm sure to some extent also across cultures, uh, both as a result of training and no doubt, doubt you know, sort of genetic, uh, common genetic makeup, we end up with broadly matching inclinations as to what to count as elegant. Okay, so uh, I think most of you will agree with me that whatever else she might have been, Madame X was an elegant woman. Okay, and you will also agree that horses are elegant creatures as opposed to, say, pigs. Nothing wrong with pigs, but elegant, they're not. Uh, or that uh, J-class yachts are elegant machines. Or that Gauss's proof of the formula for the sum of the first n positive integers is an elegant argument. Okay. Or, my final example, that Zinedine Zidane was an elegant footballer. Okay. Um, now, I'm saying that this broadly agreement between uh, different people's inclinations as to what counts as elegant and what doesn't, but there's also disagreements, okay? Sometimes people disagree about these things. I happen to think that uh, Zidane was a very elegant footballer. You might disagree. And when we disagree, this is not like a different in, difference in taste, like, you know, you like Brussels sprouts, I don't like them, and that's that. No, if you tell me that Zinedine Zidane was not an elegant footballer, I'll say that you were wrong, okay? And I might try to convince you. I might try to give you examples of stuff he did. I might try to give you sort of analogies. I might try to invoke the testimony of experts. And if uh, I respect your judgment on these matters, I might think, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's right, okay? And may, I, I might give you a chance to convince me. I might try and see things through your eyes and see why you think that he wasn't an elegant player. Okay? This is all part of the description of the pragmatics of the concept. Something similar we can say with respect to changes of mind. Okay? We occasionally change our minds as to whether something is elegant or not. Say, I used to think that Ferrero Rocher suites were very elegant, and I no longer think that. Now, and that we think of as a change of mind. It's not like, you know, I used to like Guinness, now I don't like it. No, I now think I was wrong in thinking that Ferrero Rocher were elegant. Okay? So there are all these interesting things one can say as to how we go about applying the concept of elegance. Now, if we are taking the a referential approach to explicating the concept, you're only half done. In addition, you need to give us the reference of the concept. You need to identify the property that we're ascribing to an object when we uh, 
ascribe the concept of elegance to it. Okay, the pro the con the property whose presence in an object makes it elegant. Okay. Now, in contrast with that, what the pragmatist approach does is to say that that next step is not needed. Okay, that once you've given a full description of the pragmatics of the concept, you've given a fully adequate characterization of the concept. There's nothing more to be said. What the concept of elegance is, um, according to the pragmatist approach, is the concept that we apply in the ways that we just described. That's all that needs to be said on the pragmatist approach. Now, I think many people accept that whereas perhaps the referential approach is, is, uh, is the adequate approach for some concepts, there are other concepts for which the pragmatist approach is, is, is more natural. Perhaps elegance is one of them. Okay? That's not something that people tend to have a problem with. However, what many people seem to believe is that if you accept that a concept has to be construed along the lines of the pragmatist approach, you thereby say that that concept is not suitable for the task of actually representing the world. You can play with the concept, do all sorts of things, but representing the world with it is not something that you can do unless uh, it's the kind of concept that uh, can be construed in terms of the referential approach. Okay. Um, uh, this leads philosophers who realize that uh, some concepts can only be construed along the lines of the pragmatist approach to saying that, you know, making up some other role for these concepts, you know, expressing attitudes, you know, those of you who have been involved in these debates will recognize the kind of thing uh, I'm talking about. So the assumption is that to be suitable for the task of representing the world, a concept has to be one that we can account for in terms of the referential approach. Now, what I want to say, the view that I want to defend, is the view that uh, rejects this assumption and says, uh, to the contrary, that one should provide uh, a pragmatist account of all concepts, specifically including those that we employ for representing the world. For all our concepts, the right way to uh, characterize them is to give a full description of their pragmatics. And then your account of judgment would fall out of this. Judgments would be nothing but the sort of basic moves in this activity that we describe when we provide the pragmatics of uh, concepts. So, I've already done what I said I would do. What I want to do in the next 20 years is to defend this claim. The claim that global pragmatism, as I just described it, is the only satisfactory approach to uh, explicating concepts. Now, that claim is, of course, a, a combination of two claims, one positive and one negative. The negative claim is that no other approach works, specifically that there's something wrong 
with the referential approach. And then we have the positive claim that says that, well, there is an alternative. The alternative that uh, uh, does everything in terms of the pragmatics is actually satisfactory. Okay? Now, I want to end by saying a couple of things about each of these claims. Let me start with the negative claim, just to give you a very rough sense of why I think it is correct. I think the basic thought here is to realize, and I'm not claiming this is obvious, this is something that I can convince you of, I think, uh, not today, some other day, that those referential relations that the referential approach postulates make no difference to how concepts are actually ascribed. Okay? The way in which we ascribe concepts is the same if both referential relations are as we think they are, or if they are totally different, or if they don't exist at all. Our pragmatics, our ways of ascribing concepts, are perfectly neutral between those possibilities. This is, as I say, not something that you, I'm asking you to accept as obvious. What I think, the reason why I think this is true, is that for referential relations to actually have an influence on the way we apply concepts, it would have to be possible for us to be guided in consciousness by a sort of conscious access to the dictates of the objects uh, to which we are related by, by the reference relation. And this kind of guidance, of conscious guidance, is something that is not just that we don't have it, it's something that doesn't even make sense. That I take to be what uh, Wittgenstein's rule-following consideration, considerations successfully establish. People have tried to make these arguments establish something, things that are more ambitious, and I think uh, they fail at that, but when we think of them as trying to establish that the idea of conscious guidance from abstract or sort of things in the world that to which we are related by referential relations is possible, I think when we think of these arguments as trying to establish that that's not a possibility, the argument is perfectly successful. Now, if the argument succeeds, what we have is a disconnect between the practice and the referential facts. Okay? We go along uh, applying concepts the way we do, and reference is just there, uh, not really having any influence on the life of the concept. And if that's a situation, it's very natural to say that the uh, postulation of these references is simply redundant. It plays no explanatory role. As Wittgenstein puts it in a related context, uh, we can say about them something like this, that a wheel that can be turned, though nothing else moves with it, is not part of the mechanism. Referential relations can be turned without anything else they use moving, so they are not part of the mechanism, and we should leave them out of the picture. We should divide through by them. And it's not just that. It's not just that they are sort of idle, redundant. It's this lack of connection brings other problems. It brings, uh, it brings epistemological problems. The problem of skepticism is nothing but a consequence of this situation. And forgive me my, the little plug, the, what I try to argue in my book on skepticism is precisely that if we think of the skeptical problem 
in these terms, then the problem just doesn't have a, a non-pragmatist solution. Many people nowadays think that, well, the problem is just, uh, is just a, a construct from the wrong account of, of knowledge. Once you realize that knowledge is really sort of externalistic, the problem disappears. Well, no, it doesn't. The problem, when construed in these ways, uh, is still with us, even after we accept an externalist epistemology, and only something like the abandonment of the referential relations will uh, give us a chance of solving it. Right, that's what I want to say about the negative claim. The positive claim. Very quickly, three things. First of all, naturalism. What I want to say here is I just want to point out that um, global pragmatism is in principle perfectly compatible with naturalism. So long as we can find a place in the natural order for the activities that the pragmatics of our concepts describe, for these ways in which we act when we apply concepts, uh, global pragmatism will be naturalistically acceptable because those activities are the only facts that are uh, presupposed or invoked by the global pragmatist uh, position. More specifically, the work of John O'Keefe and his colleagues will be of central importance, not in trying to give us the referential links between the mind and the world, but in giving us an account of how we actually employ these concepts. It's no mystery that we apply the concepts, our concepts the way we do, because our brain works the way it does, right? And the more we learn about how the brain works, the more we will know and the better we will understand how uh, we go about applying concepts. That's the first observation I want to make about the positive claim. The second one is about the contrast or not between the concepts uh, for which intuitively we think that the referential approach is, is, is appropriate, like uh, natural kind terms on the one hand, and on the other, these other concepts like elegance for which perhaps the pragmat pragmatist account seems more, more natural. Some people think that if you become a global pragmatist, you need to abandon these contrasts, and you need to say that it's all the same, right? There's absolutely no difference between uh, the concepts of the natural sciences and concepts such as elegance or, or comedy or anything you like. They will, all, they will all have to be treated as identical. Now, it seems to me that that's obviously false, okay? It's clear that we are perfectly, perfectly capable within global pragmatism of respecting these differences, okay? Uh, all we need to do uh, is to construe these differences in terms of the respective practices. Uh, the first thing to say, I suppose, in terms of the relationship between gold and elegance is that in the case of gold, it is part of our practice to defer to what the experts say, okay? If you very much like your procedure for deciding whether something is gold or not, but the scientists tell you, well, no, you're actually wrong. You know, our, our methods say that you're wrong. You just have to go along with that. And if you don't, you sort of left the concept. You're talking about something else. Whereas with elegance, that's not, it's not like that. We don't defer to, 
uh, the scientists or the experts of any kind to tell us that we've well, we, we don't just accept, oh, you know, we, sorry, I thought that was elegant, but I, if you tell me it isn't, then, then it isn't. That's just not how that concept is applied. Final point. This, I think, is perhaps the hardest difficulty, hardest hurdle that global pragmatism needs to sort of overcome. The idea is this. This is, this is how the challenge goes. If Suppose that judgment works uh, as the global pragmatist says it works. Okay? There's no real referential relations. All there is is uh, the practice that we have of ascribing concepts in certain ways and revising our, our procedures in certain ways, etc., etc. The objection goes, well, that's very good. It may be that that's what we do when we judge. But if that's what we do, then you have to forget about the claim that judgment is actually a representation of the world. You are under the illusion that you are providing the representations of the world, but if there's no referential relations, uh, representation is simply not there. Okay. Now, I want to, I, I don't really, I don't claim to have an, an answer to this question, to a, a way of dealing with this, but I do think I know in which direction uh, the, the solution lies. Okay. I think the problem is that the point of view from which the challenge is posed is, is illegitimate. Okay. Why is that? Well, if global pragmatism is correct, then the right thing to say about concept ascription is the things that our current practices sanction. These things are not the right things to say by definition. They're always subject to revision. But at this point, when the question is posed, the right way to answer it is in terms of our current practices. And this goes, and this is the crucial point, not just for a lower level verdicts, whether this is made of gold, whether my ring is made of gold or not, but also with respect to high-level questions, for example, whether a given concept is suitable for the task of representing the world. Think of those, of those questions as involving description of higher-order concepts, the concept of being representational, that some concepts satisfy, some concepts don't. Okay? According to global pragmatism, the right, way to, the right thing to say about which concepts are representational is whatever it is that our current practices sanction. Now, our current practices seem to indicate that um, many of our concepts are perfectly suitable for the task of representing the world. Okay? So if the challenger is claiming that that's not true, they must be assuming that for the, low, for the higher level concepts, uh, Pragmatism is not the right approach, that we are somehow invoking surreptitiously uh, a referential account of these high-level concepts. But if that's how it goes, then the objection clearly begs the question. Okay? If we need to accept that for the high-level concepts, the pragmatist approach is not correct in order to pose the problem, then it's not really a problem that's going to worry the global pragmatist who thinks that for those concepts, as well as the lower level ones, the right approach uh, is the pragmatist one, and therefore the 
verdicts that we should endorse are the, uh, the ones that are practiced currently sanctions. Right, so I think there's a lot more to be said about all of this, enough I'm sure to fill 20 years or whatever, but uh, I think I should stop here uh, and uh, give you a break. Thank you. Uh, Professor Lucy O'Brien will now give the vote of thanks and appreciation. Um, so I want to start by suggesting that Jose got something wrong. <laughs> that we were offered two alternatives for the explication of a concept, and in particular the concept elegance. And the two alternatives were the referential approach or the pragmatic approach. But Jose left out the performative exposition of the concept of elegance. I mean, he left it out in the sense that he didn't cite it in his paper, but obviously he, he gave it to us, as it were, in sense, by his paper. Nevertheless, I think it remains a challenge, as it were, to his paper. Um, I think we saw, I mean, we saw in that Jose's considerable virtues. So I was reading reviews of his skepticism book and they come round the same sort of words. It's, it's the pairings that come again. It's the deep and detailed. The kind of important and thorough. It's these, it's these pairings that I think we saw. There's a sort of scope to his work combined with this rigorous, uh, careful determination. And we got some of it coming there. Although, I mean, Mike spoke about uh, Jose's philosophical virtues, and they are, you know, they are considerable. But it's worth pointing that he's not only a terrific philosopher, he's a fantastic colleague. Um, he's an amazing administrator. I mean, he's the Mies van der Rohe of administration. I mean, minimalism doesn't. I used to think that emails had to be longer than a line long. And it's traumatizing me that Jose's incredibly successful uh, execution of all duties as a head of a department seemed to require, on average, 11 words per email. Um, He's also good, I mean, he's good at sharing, as a, as a head of department, he's good at sharing the pain, which is partly why emails only have to be one. He's good at sharing the pain, but he's also good at sharing the respect and the recognition and the pleasures of being uh, an academic. I mean, I think it's, it's notable, I think, the way in which, well, sometimes I think, I remember watch in 2010 when Spain won the World Cup, and I think Jose thought, when I'm head of department, I'm going to be like the Spanish coach. Everyone's going to be a striker, and everyone's going to be a defender. And that's a bit how it, I mean, obviously we're not very good at football, but, but, <laughs> but um, extend your metaphor as you please. Uh, that's what it feels like to operate as a, a, a member of, of the department of which he's the head. Mike mentioned uh, Jose's 
his, his Renaissance man, the fact that he, that he seems to find uh, so many time to find to do so many other things uh, in his life, play his saxophone, paint, sail, one philosophy, that leisure activity few of us get to. Um, but I want to note one particular way in which he does those things. It's not that he just writes and paints and sails and plays the saxophone. He always, he always somehow chooses to do it in the most difficult way. Right, so, so you think when you hear that Jose and you see that picture of him on his website, you think, okay, so it's, you know, lazy John Coltrane on a sun. No, 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 no. It's classical saxophone, right? There's a small repertoire, I gather. Who knew, right? Who knew? There's a small repertoire of classical saxophone, and he knows most of it. And he turns his, his hand to watercolors. Now, watercolors, right, are really good for mists and, and mellow and sort of splurgy. They're really hard to use to paint portraits with because they're so hard to control. So Jose, naturally enough, doesn't really do landscapes. He's, he's going to do, he's going to do portraits. He sails, but he doesn't just piddle around Essex on a, well, I googled um, Jose's, <laughs> Jose's name and and it came up that he was associated with the Tollersbury Cruising Club, which I thought, I hope that's his sailing. Um, anyway, he doesn't, he doesn't just sail. He, he goes to France for a weekend. I mean, literally, he's off on a Friday and he's back kind of Sunday afternoon, ready to do some watercolors, probably. Um, and then in his philosophy, of course, he's decided he's got two books out, uh, both of them. The Logic book, a classic already. Um, but no, no, we better write a book on Wittgenstein, the most inscrutable philosopher in the canon, but not the investigations. Let's get the really hard one and write it on the Tractatus. So that's his book coming out. So I just look forward to watching Jose just making his life incredibly difficult for the next 20 years.